Hey, this is Chris Garlock from the Labor Heritage Power Hour. We're proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, more than 200 labor radio and podcast shows across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where the people speak. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. Hello, working people of Southwest Washington. You're listening to episode 40 of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. Like the bumper you heard at the top of the show says, we're also a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, with over 200 radio shows and podcasts for working people just like you. Listen to some of those other shows on the network and you'll probably hear my voice in a similar bumper. Find out more about the network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Harold Phillips, and before we get started, we want to remind you that the views and opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council, its affiliate unions, our guests' unions, or employers, not even the olive in your New Year's Eve martini, if that's the type of beverage you're into. Nobody but theirs. And you know, folks, changing the calendar to 2024 is right around the corner, which always puts us in the mood to look back on the year that's almost past. And what a year it's been for working people around the world, across the country, and right here in Washington State. Over the past few years, there's been more worker and organized labor action than we've seen in decades. But it really seems like this year, 2023, has been something special. I can't think of anyone better suited to talk about what's gone on during the past year than two of the Pacific Northwest's preeminent labor journalists, Don McIntosh, editor-in-chief of the Northwest Labor Press. Thanks for joining us, Don. Thanks for having me. And David Groves, editor-in-chief of The Stand, a daily news service of the Washington State Labor Council. Thanks so much for coming back on the show, David. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, Don, David, you guys have been doing this longer than I have. Uh, in fact, the Northwest Labor Press, it's like over 100 years old now, right, Don? Have you ever seen a year like this for organized labor and working people? I suspect the Labor Press has, you know, having been around for 123 years, but I've been at it now for 25 years as of October, basically as a full-time labor reporter. And uh, it's true. And, you know, caveat is I never engage in anything like hype. I always want to sell it straight. The fact is I'm seeing a climate that's different than any I've seen in this 25 years. And it's been building. It's above all, I want to say it's about the uh, the return of the strike as something that's a real part of labor's arsenal. Just as sort of a background uh, for folks who don't know, the United States actually had the most strike active working class in the world in the late 40s and, and 1950s. There were hundreds of strikes, sometimes 300, 400 strikes of over a thousand workers every year. Uh, you know, a third of the American working force was unionized and strike was a regular part of that. That really died out starting in the early 1980s and shrank to where, I mean, honestly, it was an embarrassment. The low point was basically about 2009. There were like, you know, three to five strikes in that year of that size. 
Um, but since 2018, we've seen a strike surge. It started with the teacher strikes in a lot of the red states, large numbers of people walking out and seeing dramatic improvements. Um, and that's kind of continued. Now, it did drop back somewhat in 2020. But um, 2023, so far this year, we're looking at the most working people on strike since 2001. Um, I think it's just more in people's consciousness. I'm very excited about that because when it comes down to it, what the labor movement can gain actually has a lot to do with you know what they can do about it. If you're in a negotiation and you say, well, we want a dollar an hour raise, and the employer says, well, no, and what are you going to do about it? And the answer is nothing. Well, then there's not much to talk about. But the fact is, if you can withdraw your labor effectively uh, to say, well, this is our price. We want you to face a consequence if you can't agree to what we think is fair. That makes a big difference. And I think we're going to see that. We're seeing that even in contracts where you're not seeing a strike, a strike authorization, a strike preparation. Some of the unions in our area are seeing dramatic hourly wage gains just from that. I think that's the biggest news, really, for me, uh, the shift in 2023 building this return of the strike. Yeah, I would totally agree. But I would say that you know, what makes 2023 unique is kind of a confluence of factors. I think that people came out of the pandemic maybe dissatisfied with their work options and realizing that maybe they deserve better at work. At the same time, unions have been more focused on organizing during the Biden administration. We have a friendly administration, NLRB, that's willing to stand up for existing laws. And unlike previous years when we've been advocating for labor law reform and talking about how impossible it is to form a union, given the unfriendly Congress we have, we've been more focused on actually organizing unions. At a time when people are dissatisfied with their jobs and looking for something better, we're helping more people join together and negotiate fair wages. So I think that all that momentum lends itself to more strike activity. And in addition to that, the big contract wins that we've seen nationally and locally, uh, to the extent that we publicize those more and see the double digit pay increases that people are getting, that just fuels more organizing because people are like, hey, wait a minute. I mean, there was just a TikTok video that went viral this week about a UPS worker showing his paycheck stub. And people are like, wait a second, that guy makes six figures, you know, Either I want to be a UPS driver or I want to form a union and get that kind of deal for myself. I'm glad you brought that up, David, because I think that's another factor in this moment that we're finding ourselves in. Yes, there have been more strikes. Yes, there have been big contract gains. But the difference between this year, it seems like, and five years ago or even three years ago is the word is getting around about the wins that come from these labor actions. And I think labor press, like the Northwest Labor Press and The Stand, plays a role in that. But I think there's something else. What's driving that, do you think? Word is getting out because these strikes that we're seeing now are so massive. 
uh, that you really can't ignore them. You know, over the years, uh, sometimes in labor, we have people who complain that we don't get enough coverage in the mainstream media and so forth. I think there's some fairness to that. But I think if you go back and see the era when labor was getting a lot more coverage, it's because you couldn't avoid it. You know, the coal workers were on strike and you might not have uh, coal in your furnace or whatever. You know, there was such a level of activity that you couldn't avoid covering it. And I think to some extent with labor sort of receding into the background and not being as active, you did see less coverage. Um, now it's coming back. I mean, the sag after strike, I mean, it shut down Hollywood for months, right? The Writers Guild strike, you know, shut down a lot of the late night TV and so forth. I mean, these were really impactful strikes, large strikes high-profile strikes. Um, you know, UPS ultimately didn't need to go on strike, but everyone uh, that, that relies on shipping packages was pretty freaked out about that, understandably, because, I mean, it's a big deal. But also, I think, you know, public opinion polls show that the public was overwhelmingly in favor of those workers, realizing that they've kind of gotten a raw deal. Uh, auto workers, a great example. And there, I think there was a verve and a good strategy, I think, that also got some attention, you know, calling it the stand-up strike. Uh, where it starts gradually and it's sort of unpredictable and you're increasing the level of pain on these companies while preserving the extraordinarily flush strike fund that they had accumulated to prepare for that strike. You know, another thing that was different is that for years, we've been doing a good job of building community coalitions on all sorts of issues from racial justice to climate protections. And I think that that is paying some dividends in terms of attitudes about unions. When you look at this past Labor Day, when the AFL-CIO did its polling on the popularity of unions, two-thirds of Americans support unions, which is, you know, as high as it's ever been in my lifetime. But what was remarkable about that was 88% of young people, 88% of people that are 30 and younger support unions. So that transcends political lines and other things that divide people. And I think a lot of that is the result, not necessarily of young people that are suddenly in unions, but they've seen the work we're doing and they've seen what we stand for and they believe in it. And I think that unions are doing a better job talking about what services we provide and what we stand for so that, you know, we're not being drowned out by the billionaire-funded anti-union groups, and that's something that kind of dominated the media coverage of unions for decades. Young people, it's interesting, are actually the least likely to be in a union. They tend to find themselves in occupations that don't tend to be very unionized, and yet really a distinct generational divide where the youngest workers are really by far the most pro-union, uh, up to 80 and above percent are saying they're approving of unions. And another interesting new development, similarly, is that there's a shift underway where now uh, the more educated you are, actually, the more likely you are to tell pollsters that you're pro-union. And so I think what we're seeing, especially when you have both young and educated workers, is you're seeing an extraordinary explosion of union activity. Uh, for example, graduate student workers in Oregon Health and Science University, a really massive uh, campus and complex of hospitals and research institutes. We've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of workers organizing in the last few years uh, to the point where I think within a year or so, it's going to be wall-to-wall -wall union. But these are educated and, and often cases young workers. Another example, at the very beginning of 2023, the University of California graduate students were on strike. It was over 30,000 altogether were on strike, and they won dramatic gains. They got pay increases of 25% for teaching assistance. And so I think that there's this kind of a generational excitement around unions that didn't exist, say, 10 years ago. I don't know what was wrong with my generation, I'm Gen X, but we, we just tend to be more individualistic. But I suspect there's more of an appetite for collective action among the very youngest workers today. 
let's speak to Washington State. One of the bills that we passed this year was a bill that would allow academic student employees at universities in Washington, other than University of Washington and Washington State University, to have the right to form a union. So in other words, the regional four-year colleges could now organize unions. And immediately, we've seen some major organizing wins. There were 1,100 academic student employees at Western that voted by a 98% majority to unionize. There's a unionizing drive at Central Washington University of another 1,000 academic student employees. And a second bargaining unit at Western Washington University, another more than 1,000 employees who are actually operational student employees that don't do academics, but do things like work in the gyms or their RAs and work in the dorms, those types of jobs, um, they filed for a union too. So what Don was saying was true, is absolutely true that thousands of young people are forming unions so that they have a seat at the table when decisions are being made at these universities about not only their wages and working conditions, but all sorts of issues that they care about. And they know that by joining together, they can fight for those things. And it also helped that this year, UW graduate students, as Don was saying, had a 10-day strike and ended up winning double-digit increases. That was a very visible uh, strike. It kind of shut things down for a while at uh, University of Washington. Other young people see that and say, look, they stood up together and they fought and they won. And I want to do that now, too. We're seeing that in Oregon, even undergraduate student workers at the University of Oregon campus just unionized, uh, over a thousand of them. So <laughs> yeah, the younger they get, the more likely they are to unionize. We saw a little bit of this in the... Um, Portland teacher strike, which went on for quite a while, but had very substantial community sport, including students. Students were marching with the teachers. Yeah, I think that's another sector that we can't ignore. While, yes, we have a lot of student workers who are organizing and in some cases striking, we've also had a lot of faculty and teacher strikes happen over the past year in the Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah, here in uh, Southwest Washington, you saw the educators and Camus and Vancouver walk out and they want some increased classroom support and better wages and better ability to recruit and retain educators. Actually, Southwest Washington was kind of the hub of that strike activity for teachers this year. Sometimes it spread around the state, but this year it was in Southwest Washington and they made significant gains. And it flowed south of the river, didn't it, Don? Yeah, the Portland Association of Teachers, the Teachers Union, went on uh, actually its first ever strike, which I think is one of the things that we're seeing, too. There are bargaining units that never have struck before, didn't know how, never thought of it. There's something in the mood right now where they're seeing others doing it and live to tell the tale and in many cases make dramatic gains. Um, I want to say, too, you know, I'm very reluctant to engage in any kind of hype, but I think that we are seeing something that's different now. One of them is, I think it's been tremendously difficult to organize over the years, union organizing for people who aren't familiar. The, the playing field, legally, it's, you know, you have all these rights and then employers trample them routinely and there's very little consequence for it. There's so much power oftentimes that an employer has to discourage union campaigns. So it takes a certain amount of momentum and effort to unionize. But I think one of the factors has been that people hadn't been seeing unions win big. 
I think that's changing now. So one of the most exciting things actually about the United Auto Workers strike, which I really think has to be named the strike of the year, uh, you know, just for the most dramatic gains they got and the public attention and the experience, the transformational experience for those workers of striking, I think is, is something that shouldn't be neglected either. But within weeks of the settlement of those strikes with the big three, I mean, we're talking massively profitable companies that had not been getting a fair share to their workers and are now going to be doing so, or at least at least a step in that direction. Within weeks, the United Auto Workers uh, announced that they are organizing across the entire industry. They now have campaigns at Toyota, Honda, Hyundai, Nissan, Subaru, Mazda, Volkswagen, BMW, Mercedes, Volvo, Lucid, Rivian, and even Tesla. So we'll be seeing what's going to happen with those campaigns. But the fact those auto workers in those foreign-owned but U.S. plants are seeing their unionized counterparts get things they don't have, I think that's going to be the most powerful argument for them to unionize where they've had difficulty in recent years. And it's interesting to note that days after the big three settled with the UAW, some of those companies voluntarily raised their wages and benefits. And even with that, the workers decided that they really wanted to explore unionization. So it sounds like some businesses are starting to realize that maybe they're going to have to give their workers a little bit more. Oh, and that's certainly a cynical tactic on the part of these non-union employers. It's not that they want to give these raises, to be you know, perfectly candid. They're hoping that they will avoid a union forming at their factories. And so in that sense, it's cynical, but it also, I think, is a really important illustration of how, again and again, the labor union movement, unionized workers, set the standard for their industry oftentimes. So what they fight for, what they sacrifice for, what they win, ends up being enjoyed not only by them, but by others who are non-union. Another factor that I think we should talk about that seems new in 2023 is more militant union leadership. And we just gave UAW the uh, Strike of the Year Award. So um, it's also worth noting that UAW is responsible for the vast majority of those academic student employees that we just talked about that are getting organized. And they have a new leader in Sean Fain that's kind of captured the minds and hearts of people all across the country that may know nothing about auto workers or what it's like, you know, at the big three, but has certainly heard about his union and what they were able to accomplish together. And the same is true with the Teamsters, you know, with the UPS negotiations, they have new leadership that really was aggressive and really got huge gains for them. You could probably say the same about SAG-AFTRA with Fran Drescher and there's there's other unions that we're seeing some uh you know a changing of the guard and more militant leadership where they're more willing to go on strike or threaten to strike or to invest more resources in organizing and I think that's also been a factor in labor success in 2023. It does seem like in the past year there's been a lot of retirements there's been a lot of union presidents stepping down or thinking about ending their career. Are we seeing a shift in union leadership writ large? Well, at the Washington State Labor Council, we have new leaders that took over at the beginning of 2023, uh, the first team of Black women to ever run an AFL-CIO state federation. And they're very popular, very dynamic, and they're doing great things. And I think that yeah, there's definitely some turnover happening, and I think that that's always a good thing. And hopefully as young people continue to organize and learn from experience that getting involved is how you make a difference in forming your union. The same is true about 
the direction your union takes once you have it and after you bargain contracts. If you stay involved in the union, you can continue to accomplish things. If you stay involved with your local central labor council in Southwest Washington or the state fed in Oregon or Washington, young people could absolutely take those organizations over just by showing up and working hard and being organizers within the labor movement. And that's my hope, you know, as a aging labor activist in the home stretch, um, I'm excited that there's so many young people entering the movement right now. And I haven't seen that before. I want to endorse that entirely. And in fact, this year we saw in Oregon, uh, the AFT Oregon, which is the large affiliate of the American Federation of Teachers that represents a lot of university employees. They had a dramatic uh, takeover, really. Young workers, young union activists who had gotten involved in some cases in graduate students, unions and so forth. They got organized and they came to the convention and they ran for office on a slate and they won. In fact, they ran the convention. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, you know, usually you have the sort of the, the incumbent leadership will run the convention. The truth is, if you learn the democratic tools and you get involved, those can enable you to make the change that you want. They made a lot of reform resolutions and so forth. So I think it's a good example. The UAW actually is another good example in a way because I think they had kind of hit rock bottom. They literally had their two most recent uh, presidents of the National Union are in federal prison right now because of a scandal involving bribery with, uh, with fiat, I believe it was. And you can sit around and you can bellyache and say, oh, the union is so terrible, the union is so corrupt. And the reason it becomes so terrible and so corrupt occasionally is because people didn't get involved. And so when people like Sean Fink get involved, they find that they can get in there, they can bring to life these democratic tools again. Unions are ultimately democratic organizations, you know, so it's only as good as the members and the members who take the time and the trouble to get involved. So that's certainly very exciting to see. Um, you know, I think some of the older leadership came in at a time when unions were being beaten and were losing. And so I think that to have new folks who don't have that sort of fatalism or, or pessimism, I think it's really encouraging. And I think that even the older leaders also are encouraged by that and are being emboldened by the new spirit. I really believe in all the generations contributing to this change, but it is certainly exciting to see the young people coming in. Well, if we're talking about young workers, we really can't avoid talking about Starbucks and about the wave of retail worker organizing that's happened, not just at Starbucks, but at REI, at coffee shops that aren't Starbucks. I had a list in my head and it totally went away. <laughs> No, but it's true. And and I here's where I might want to be a little bit cautious, and I'll just share my perspective. Others can disagree. Uh, as much as I certainly would be thrilled to see uh, unions come back in a big way in terms of organizing, we're not really seeing that in the numbers yet. I mean, it's true that, you know, if you'd asked me five years ago, do you think that 300 Starbucks stores will be unionized in 2023? I would have said, what are you smoking? But that's what's happened. But we have to be cautious, too, because they don't have a union contract yet, not at a single store. And Starbucks is a big, you know, quite frankly, aggressive, uh, greedy company that has a lot of tools at its disposal and a lot of money to pay lawyers. And the National Labor Relations Board, that federal agency that's supposed to administer the law and protect the right of workers to unionize, they've done everything they can. And I'm really quite proud of them, actually. But they've gone after Starbucks with hundreds of legal cases. Uh, we just had actually on our front page of our current issue. The first two Starbucks workers in Oregon who were fired illegally for supporting union, a judge's order that they be reinstated. Of course, Starbucks is going to appeal and we'll see how that goes. But the fact is, it's on the one hand very exciting to see this development of like, you know, high turnover, low wage retail workforce of young people mostly unionizing. At the same time, 
they're facing a very powerful adversary and none of them have a contract yet. So I don't know what, we don't know what the final chapter in that story is. Um, there certainly is a lot of small, what we call hot shops popping up, you know, a theater with 10 employees, they decide they're going to unionize one day, you know, a donut shop decides to unionize. And we're seeing, you know, a dozen or more of these in the last year. It's just that in almost no case do they have a contract yet. Again, terribly exciting, but they don't have a track record yet of achieving anything. And so I'm looking forward to seeing that happen if it happens. But I'm going to hate to break it to you, but uh, unions are still shrinking as a percentage of the workforce. And until we see that turn around, you know, well, let's put it this way. I think all the things we're talking about are likely to affect that, but I don't want to pretend that it's happening yet. Let's talk in a year or two, and hopefully we'll have those numbers start to actually creep up for the first time in a generation. Don, you just mentioned the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. Didn't they have a big decision just like a month or two ago that may affect those unions that are still waiting on their contracts? Are you talking about the Semex decision? I think I am. Okay, so now we're going to get just slightly into the weeds, but I think I'll do my job to explain it uh, as best as I can. So basically, the National Labor Relations Act, it says you have the right to unionize, by and large. You know, private sector workers, with a few exceptions, if the majority of you and your coworkers get together and you say, we want a union, the law says you're supposed to be able to do that, and the employer is obligated to recognize that union and say, okay, okay, you have a union, now we'll bargain together instead of individually. But employers have had all sorts of tricks, legal tricks, to defy that. And one of the things they say is, well, I don't really believe that you have the majority. You might have a, 10 employees and nine of them are in your damn office saying, we want a union. We say, oh, no, you need to have an election to prove that you have a majority. But the thing is, that's bad faith. If nine people are in your office out of your 10 employees, they say they want a union. It's a lie that you can't see there's a majority. And so the National Labor Relations Board is with the new general counsel, the top uh, enforcement officer. They're basically trying to return to the spirit of the law, which is that if there is a majority, the employer needs to recognize it and get busy bargaining a fair contract. Yeah, I would add to that that, um, again, going back to what I said earlier about 2023 was not a year where we were fighting for labor law reform and the PRO Act or before that the Employee Free Choice Act and spending most of our time explaining publicly how hard it is to form a union. And instead, we got down to brass tacks and started forming some unions. And it tremendously helped to have the Biden administration in charge and have a NLRB that is willing to enforce existing laws because it's a multi-billion dollar union avoidance industry that's constantly looking for ways to subvert worker organizing and loopholes and new ways to stop people from forming a union. So as fast as you plug one hole, you need to plug another. It does help to have a National Labor Relations Board that's actually doing its job. And I think that that's put employers generally on their heels a little more, and they've been more willing to negotiate. And now with that Simex decision, in theory, it should make it easier to form a union once you can demonstrate that you have majority support, even without an election. So we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about big unions, big strikes, little unions, enthusiasm, not having to fight just to sell the idea of a union. You think about these trends that we saw in 2023. What do they say about what we can expect in 2024? I know I'm asking you to do the crystal ball thing. <laughs> but generally speaking, as we look ahead to the coming year, 
how do you think what happened this year is going to affect what might happen next year? Well, I hope that we realize that we do have the power to make unions available to more people and we continue to work on that and that we continue to focus on organizing and we continue to focus on um, bragging about our contract victories. That's something actually that the Northwest Labor Press does a really good job of getting building trades unions and others when they get a new contract to say, look, here's how much they make an hour. And oftentimes it's an eye-popping number. And if anybody sees that number, it's just like the TikTok video of the UPS guy. They're like, holy crap, um, I could make that kind of money in a skilled trade in the building industry. Of course, I'm going to pursue something like that rather than getting a college degree and ending up working, you know, some low wage white collar job where it's much harder to form a union. So getting back to your original question about what does 2024 look like? I mean, we'll find out at the end of January when the new numbers come out and Don's our realist here and he'll keep an eye on that and see whether we've actually made some gains for all these positive indicators that we've noted in the past year. As for Washington State, we're the third most organized state in the country, meaning that um, we have the third highest percentage of union members in Washington State. Only New York and Hawaii have a higher percentage. And I know that's something that April Sims and Sharika Carter, our executive officers, talk about is we should go for number one. You know, we need to continue to build union density. We need to continue to focus on organizing and bragging about our wins and bringing more people in. And so that's, I know, going to be our focus in 2024. But that will be a measuring stick that we get at the end of January um, to see whether the numbers actually show what feels like all the incidental evidence of growth actually is happening. David's right about the uh, front page headlines. Those are intentional. And this year we had on our front page, you know, $11, $13, $9 an hour increase. And these are over a couple of year periods, but they are eye-popping numbers. And in fact, uh, I, this is an interesting dynamic. I think I actually got some good-natured uh, grief over that. A uh, local union leader called me up and said, Don, what are you doing? You're putting that they got, you know, $9, $13 an hour on the front page. Now my members are demanding that. But that's a funny dynamic because it's about raising expectations. If you say, actually, this is achievable, then you got to figure out, well, how do you get from here to there? And maybe it's by copying the tactics and preparing to strike. The Sheet Metal Workers Local 16 got extraordinary results this year by getting ready seriously for a credible threat of a strike. The contractors looked at that and they said, okay, we're going to settle and dig deep. And they did. Um, this is, by the way, one of the undertold stories of organized labor. The building trade sector is not widely understood outside of the trades, but they really do have a pretty interesting model and in many ways are extraordinarily successful. They have a role in training the workforce and also in some ways in provision of benefits. They have these very good benefit plans that they're able to offer to small contractors and large both. So if you're an employer and you say, well, I need 20 electricians you know, next week, you go to the union and they can provide that staffing. The unions really combine the power of those who have a skill in a particular profession and occupation in uh, building trades. Um, Harold, I'm avoiding your question about the crystal ball because, you know, it's it's tough thing to do. I think the, the safest prediction is to see that whatever the current trend will continue. And I think that's probably true. Certainly, it's going to be interesting to see the UAW and the success they achieve. I suspect we're still in a period next year of growing momentum, that people are seeing these strikes and these gains, and they're going to get more active and more people are likely to join unions. That's sort of the safest prediction. I want to say my big worry 
is about the politics next year, you know, and I'm not one who spends a lot of time worrying about the presidential stuff. I find it annoying that like, you know, two days after somebody's sworn in, they're already talking about who's going to run in four years. I, I find that kind of noxious. But the fact is that um, I'll just sort of backtrack and say, you're talking to someone who had become very, very cynical about the Democratic Party for a long time. And that's actually changed for me as well. I'm seeing a much more of a return of support for labor at all levels of the party than we saw like 10 or 15 years ago. And I think that's very encouraging. Joe Biden, that's a guy who was like my least favorite in the primary when he was running in 2020. And yet the fact is, from the moment he was sworn in, he's been the most pro-labor president of my lifetime, maybe ever. And we could spend a whole show just talking about that, why that is, and the details of that. But above all, it's his appointments. He's appointed people who are really serious about enforcing the law, about defending workers. I've never seen anything like it, as I say, in 25 years of labor reporting. So the fact that he's going to be on the ballot next year, run the country, and you know who knows who the Republican nominee will be, probably not a friend of labor. I don't know. Uh, Trump, I think, you know, he's not the devil that a lot of people will make him out to be. But the fact is, on the issues that we care about uh, in organized labor, he's really not an ally. So I'm concerned that so much of the progress that we've seen that I've described that the Biden administration has put forward, uh, that could really be wiped out in a way by another Trump administration. So that has me concerned. How about you, David? Do you have concerns about next year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going to be, uh, what are our language limitations? Can it's I say a it's podcast, be a shit man. show? Because it's going to be a shit show. There's no FCC watching or listening. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, it's going to be a real challenging year. Despite all economic indicators being pretty positive, I think people still are frustrated with inflation and want to blame the Biden administration rather than, you know, corporate profiteering and supply chain disruptions that most economists agree were responsible for that inflation. You know, there's only so much education you can do once somebody's made up their mind. And it sounds like a lot of people have kind of already made up their minds. They aren't happy about either choice. But in some ways, they blame Biden for the fact that either gasoline or a gallon of milk costs so much more than it did before the pandemic. We really have our jobs cut out for us to explain to our members and their households what a difference the Biden administration has made in terms of their union and their ability to negotiate these good contracts and organize more workers that benefits us all. And, um, you know, that's going to be a big challenge in the year, but that's something that we're going to take head on. So where are people going to go to find those explanations and that information that's going to educate them, David? Well, uh, you can always subscribe and view thestand.org. That's the news service that the Washington State Labor Council provides and newly redesigned so that hopefully it looks better on your phones and tablets than it did before. Um, also, the Washington State Labor Council's main website, there'll be lots of information about candidates that we've endorsed and why they earned labor's endorsement. And, you know, the stand isn't just about that stuff. It's also chronicling all the labor news in the state of Washington about worker organizing, about contract victories, about other stories of working people standing together in Washington state, as the tagline says. Thestand.org. And not just in Washington State, but the entire staff of The Stand does a great job of pulling together national and international news as well. 
Yeah, thank you. And that's not done via AI or anything like that. That's done by a guy that wakes up really early in the morning and actually uh, skims all the national news websites. I'm not doing word searches for unions or anything like that. I'm actually reading every morning because I'm kind of a news junkie and finding stuff that I think will be of interest to our readers. So take advantage of that. Every morning we have, in addition to some original content and some stories based in Washington, we have a roundup of news links of everything that's going on across the state and country so that people can stay informed and get involved where they care to. I can't speak highly enough of the work that David does with The Stand. I mean, there's few things like it, and not just the news about labor unions and their issues and struggles, but also just generally, you know, the working class and what kind of a deal we're getting. Really, really uh, tremendous. It's free. You put your email in, you get five days a week, except for the occasion when David gets to go on vacation, in which case there's usually a music video or something there instead. But five days a week, you've got a wonderful rundown of local and national news. I, I assume, Howard, you're giving me a chance to plug the Northwest Labor Press as well nwlaborpress.org. Uh, we're not the stand. It's a twice monthly publication. As I say, been around 123 years. But again, put your email in the little field there and you'll also get that twice a month, um, what we've reported locally. Our area is basically Oregon and Southwest Washington. We pretend to try to cover Washington politics mostly by picking David's brain uh, occasionally about what's going on. But yeah, that's that's uh, nwlaborpress.org. And Don, don't you have a print edition as well? Yeah, it's printed by union folks, also mailed by union folks and delivered by union folks, uh, all union operation and written as well by union members. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a, a pretty darn good deal for a union member, $18 a year for 24 issues, it's 75 cents. I think it's a good investment, 12 pages usually. Um, and we have plans to improve what we're doing, but I think it's a pretty interesting newspaper my, myself and I hear positive feedback, but check it out. Um, yeah, $18 a year for a union member or $24 a year for the general public or if you want to support us. And they can also find that subscription information at nwlaborpress.org? That's right. Slash subscribe, take you right there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Don McIntosh, Editor-in-Chief of the Northwest Labor Press, and David Groves, the entire staff of The Stand. Thank you so much for uh, having me, and I appreciate also the work you're doing keeping union members informed in Southwest Washington what's going on. It's an important service. Ditto. We have to keep talking about those wins. And thank you, working people, for joining us on another episode of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. Now, folks, I know that many of you aren't just looking forward to turning the clock on New Year's Eve. There are a few other holidays taking place at this time of year, holidays that involve gifts to your friends and loved ones. I also know that a lot of you are looking to buy high-quality, American-made, and union-made gifts. But how do you know if what you're planning to buy for your special someone is union-made? Well, the AFL-CIO has you covered with its 2024 Union-Made Gift Guide. You can find it at aflcio.org slash madeinamerica slash holiday Dash gifts. Ugh, you know what? That that that's a mouthful. Don't don't try and copy that down. Look for the link in the show notes and buy union this year. I know that you know buying union supports family wage jobs and benefits, and like Don and David were saying, it helps to raise the level of wages and benefits across entire industries. Just ask those auto workers at uh, 
Toyota and Honda and the rest of them. Supporting union workers means supporting all workers. Whether you're talking about auto workers, gift manufacturer workers, or even media workers like me. And that's why this podcast was recorded under a SAG-AFTRA collective bargaining agreement. Remember, working people, this is your show. We want to know what you want to hear on it. Email us at podcast at swwaclc.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at swwaclc. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. And while you're at it, give us five stars or mix up your New Year's Eve cocktail or whatever your podcast platform of choice gives you to let people know you like what we're doing here. One last thing, folks. We talked about a lot of wins that happened this year. Those wins, as Don mentioned, only came from people getting involved. And I think David hit the nail on the head. The reason we have leaders like the UAW's Sean Fay, like the Teamsters, Sean O'Brien, is because the members of those unions got engaged. They voted. They came together to build a different union and take it in the direction they wanted to take it. You've got that chance too, whether you're in a union or not. It just depends on you getting involved, coming together with your fellow workers, listening to some of those wins that we were talking about, and working together to make a change at work. I'm not going to say it's easy. Don suggested some of the things that new unions may face when they try to bargain with their employers. But it's a simple fact that trying to bargain with your employers alone is a lot harder than bargaining with your employers together, with your fellow workers having your back. So think about making a New Year's resolution. Next year, if you've been struggling at work, if you can see changes that should be made that'll make things better for everybody, talk to your fellow workers. Talk to them about working together to make a change. Organizations like the Washington State Labor Council would be happy to put you in touch with a union organizer who could help you figure out next steps. And maybe we'll be talking about your union at the end of your wrap-up next year. For now, we'll see you soon.